I'm Heather Mangilio, and this is Frederick Uncut. It's Tuesday, April 21st, and Frederick County reported the most deaths from COVID-19 in a single day. Now, quick note, these are just cases that were reported in one day. The deaths actually happened over a week. But as Frederick County reports the highest increase in deaths, so does the Maryland State Department of Health. In 24 hours, 68 Maryland residents died of COVID-19. That makes today the deadliest day in terms of the COVID-19 pandemic in the state. In terms of increases in cases, we now have 14,193. That's about an increase of a little more than 500. I spoke with Dr. Randy Culpepper, who is the Deputy Health Officer for Frederick County, about the COVID-19 pandemic in the county and in the state. We're about a little under two months since we started reporting our first cases uh, of COVID-19 in Maryland, and it's been a much shorter time since Frederick County reported its first cases. So I wanted to get an update on how things are going. Have we reached the peak? What more to come? And if we are going to have a second wave like so many fear. I'm joined now by Dr. Randall Culpepper, the Deputy Health Officer for Frederick County. We're going to discuss the COVID-19 pandemic We still haven't reached the peak, and he'll explain a little bit more about what it means to hit a peak and how we know when we've hit a peak. But it's been a little under two months since we've reported our first cases of COVID-19 here in the state, and I wanted to know more about how things are going, what we are doing in terms of testing, what these new increases mean for the state, and what it means if we reopen our state too early and we might have that second wave that so many people fear. Um, so, Dr. Culpepper, I want to start off by just talking about some of the statistics that came out this morning. So I saw that there were um, 68 new deaths in Maryland. I think that's our, it's now our deadliest day if you look at that 24-hour period. Um, but at the same time, it seemed like we had a smaller increase in the number of new cases. So what should Frederick County residents take away from that data? Yeah, thanks for the opportunity, Heather, to speak with you this morning. You know, when we get the data reported like that, it's not necessarily always means that the deaths occurred on that day. And we know that the data gets reported. Sometimes there's a lag, maybe a day or two days uh, for that lag. That's why we see sometimes a difference between what the state reports and what each individual county, specifically here in Frederick, will report. I think the bottom line is, and I I know you and I have talked about this quite a few times, is that uh, we're still on the acceleration phase of this pandemic. And uh, I, I want people to really know that, that we're, we're, we're not at the peak yet. And you always hear about that peak, um, but we're not quite there yet. And I, uh, we won't even know that we've reached the peak until we've gotten the other side of the hill and starting going downhill in that deceleration phase. So I think bottom line, the, the data still says that we need to continue the social distancing and the restriction of movement measures that our governor and our local health uh, folks have recommended. And when you mention that the peak, when people say peak, are they talking about the peak in the number of total cases, the peak in deaths? What do we judge when we're trying to figure out, have we gone past that peak? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, Most of our models uh, that try to estimate for us when that peak will occur, they're primarily looking at use of resources. And that's what we use the models for when will we need the most number of resources? What do I mean by resources? You know, in hospitals especially, we're looking at what's the total number of beds that hospitals gonna need? And specifically, what are the total number of ICU or intensive care unit beds that the hospital is gonna need? Because you know, our patients that when they go to the hospital, if they go to the hospital, they're gonna be pretty sick. And so they oftentimes do require the intensive care unit beds to do that. So we look at resources being used. Um, we do also use the peak to identify when we, we're seeing the most numbers of cases uh, re, uh, diagnosed each day. And sadly, unfortunately, you also look at the, the total number of deaths that are reported each day. So we are still seeing an increase of numbers of cases and, and um, we're, we're not at that peak. So the question I always get asked is, when do you know when you've reached the peak? And I mentioned a few minutes ago, you know, when we know that we're in that deceleration phase, we have to go 14 days seeing a consistent decrease in numbers of cases each day. And so if we have a couple of days of decreases and whoops, back up again, another increase of cases, we haven't reached the peak yet. But when we start seeing consistent decreases of cases over two weeks, then we can look back and say, that was the peak. 
and now we can start planning for how to uh, work and manage the, the cases in our community in this deceleration phase. So how does testing play into that? Because I hear a lot, oh, well, those numbers are not always reliable because we increased how much testing. So more people were tested. So of course we found more positives. Yeah, that's true. And so remember when, uh, not you, but I know you know this, but everybody else listening, it, it's, you know, when you hear the numbers of cases uh, reported, those are simply the number of positive case, positive test results that we've received, right? And so those, cases, those positive test results, uh, for the most part, are going to be people who are symptomatic, because we're not testing in general, we're not testing asymptomatic people. But we know that there are, are most likely a lot of asymptomatic cases uh, that are positive, that would be positive if they were tested, but they never develop symptoms. We're not really sure why that is. Uh, it's, it's a relatively new concept for us in virology and and uh, the, this new virus is teaching us a lot of things that we didn't know before. And so uh, when we look at the number of new cases, we're looking at the number of new test results. So if we can test, if we, and if we, and one other reason you might have an increase of cases is because there's an increase of testing. It's funny, if you look at our daily numbers of new cases reported, that's always a little bit lower on Mondays because of the weekend where there's not as much testing going on, right? And so the Mondays, we all see a little bit fewer numbers than normal, but it's right back up again on Tuesday and Wednesday and then the rest of the week. And so uh, if we can increase testing, I think it helps us get a better idea of who is infected, whether you're symptomatic or not symptomatic, who's infected, and get a more accurate picture of how big this pandemic really is. You know, I've seen estimates that the number of true cases in our community and any community in the country or really in the world I've seen estimates that the number of true cases uh, is magnitudes order greater than the, simply the numbers of cases that we're having tested that come back positive. All right, well, and speaking of tests, um, I know that the governor announced yesterday that we got 500,000 tests um, in Maryland. Are we gonna see any of those tests here in Frederick County? I can bet we will. Um, I think the distribution of those tests and identifying which laboratories will receive those tests it's still a work in progress, I think, but I think uh, they will shortly be able to roll out those new test uh, capability to different labs. Um, right now, there are really only a handful of laboratories who are testing for this virus in Maryland. So it's a Maryland Department of Health, um, several hospitals, for example, Johns Hopkins University, their laboratory is authorized to do the actual testing. Uh, some commercial laboratories, Quest and LabCorp, the two that we rely on most in this county, but I think we're gonna start seeing more laboratories get the ability and the authorization to do testing. It's not just a matter of getting, uh, handing those tests to that laboratory, say, all right, now today you can start uh, testing. They really have to, each laboratory is gonna to have to go through a, a uh, testing process to prove that in their laboratory, they can successfully use that test, specific test. And that's true for any test that we do for any diseases. So even though we identify laboratories, let's say tomorrow, this will be a number of days or maybe even a week before those labs can actually start running those tests themselves. So I think it's a work in progress, but I am really, I'm really, I'm really thankful for the governor have, having reached out and went way beyond what most other people are able to do and secured half a million tests for our communities. And I think that's, that's critical. And yes, we will see them here in our community, but which labs will be running it, I don't know. I'm sure FHH, Frederick Health Hospital will be one of them but we'll see what other labs might be able to participate, such as our federal labs. All right, great. Um, now to go back to the hospitals. Um, so today the Maryland Department of Health released um, the number of people who are currently hospitalized in acute care um, and intensive care, um, which is good to know those kinds of in that information. But I was wondering when it comes to nursing homes, since we know that there are a lot of cases in nursing homes, is that uh, throwing off the data since so many of the people at nursing home might have DNRs or choose not to go to a hospital when once they come down with COVID-19? Well, that's a good question. Um, let me make sure I understand your question. I, I, our hospital, our hospital in Frederick, Frederick Health Hospital certainly has a, and has had a good number of uh, patients in their hospital, uh, both in the regular hospital beds as well as their ICU beds. 
And a good number of those beds had been occupied or had been occupied by residents from our long-term care facilities. Um, that is expected, that's, that's not a surprise. You know, from the very beginning back in January when we at the health department stood up our operational command center, uh, we from the very first said we have to protect two things in our county. And one is protect our vulnerable population, which are mostly our elderly population. And of course, those folks who are immunocompromised and those that wouldn't do so well be infected by this virus. And the second thing we had to protect is our healthcare infrastructure. And so we all expected to, that we would have cases in our long-term care facilities. I think maybe I was a little bit naive at the beginning, thinking that we could actually prevent it in every facility, but I knew deep in my heart that wasn't going to be possible. So uh, here we are, and we have a good number of cases in our long-term long -term care facilities. Many are being managed at the facility just fine, but those that uh, get really ill have to be transferred to the hospital. But it doesn't throw off our numbers. It's just a matter of, of the way that the virus is ravaging our community and every community. We know we're going to have these kinds of uh, cases in the hospitals from the facilities too. So in um, terms of the cases here in Frederick County, looking at the data from yesterday, um, which was most updated, any surprises in the ages of cases that we're seeing? I've noticed that we do have a lot more younger and early on everyone's saying, oh, this don't worry if you're you know, younger than 50, this isn't really gonna affect you. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. Let's talk about that. Um, if you take all the cases in Maryland and look at the age distribution of those cases, uh, we have a fairly normal bell curve. And that means look at the ages by decade. So zero to nine, 10 to 19, et cetera. Look at the ages by decade. And then on the, on the vertical up axis, you look at the numbers of cases and you can see a pretty good clear bell curve where that starts off at, at, at zero age and all the way up to 100 years of age. And the average age we're seeing right at the top of that bell curve is about 45 to 55 years of age. So this virus doesn't discriminate against who it, it attacks, not at all. We have a good number of cases in children less than 10 years of age. We have a good number of cases in adults who are 80 or 90 or 100 years of age. But the average age, the most numbers of cases are happening between the ages of 45 and 55. So with that said, let's talk about those folks who are younger and say, you know, it's not affecting me. I, I know it's just the disease of those old people. It's not true at all. Absolutely not true at all. And I've read so many case reports and I've seen so many testimonials by people in their 20s and their 30s. And oh gosh, how hard it is to hear them talk about how sick they've gotten. And these are completely normal individuals. They have no medical problems whatsoever. But this virus doesn't discriminate. It will ravage the body of a 20-year-old just as it will ravage a body, body of an 80-year-old. But now let's talk about the, the one big difference. Who's likely to die? Um, it's a morbid topic, of course, but uh, we are definitely seeing this, this virus uh, have, have much more severe consequences in our older population. Why? not simply because they're older, uh, but because they are older, they will tend to have uh, more medical problems that will complicate the disease process in their body. And the older we get, um, the less uh, function, uh, the, the their immune system doesn't function as well. And so for those reasons, the bodies can't fight off that virus as easily. But believe you me, uh, the numbers of young folks who are getting infected I don't care if you're a teenager or your 20s or 30s, they can ravage your body just as much as someone they're 80 years of age. All right. Well, how about for those people who are younger, um, you know, the ones who are still in uh, elementary and middle and uh, high school. So I know that they that we do have cases in those population. Um, any chance that we will be opening schools this year, do you think? <laughs> That's a million dollar question. Isn't it? I don't know. I don't know. I, I'll tell you Randy Culpepper's opinion, though. Um, oh, go for it. <laughs> we've now closed schools until May 15th, right? And so the earliest that schools will close will be um, open would be May 18th, I believe. That's a Monday. If we haven't reached the peak yet, and I don't think we have reached the peak yet, if we've not reached that peak yet, 
And keeping in mind that our first case in Frederick County was diagnosed on or, or reported on March 16th. So that's about five weeks ago. And then let's say our peak is this week. Let's say it's right now. The peak's going to occur right now or maybe over the next week. It's taken us five to six weeks to to, to the peak. It's going to take five or six weeks to get back down the other side of the mountain. And remember, we've been doing these social isolation restrictions of movements for almost this entire time since we've had our first case here in Maryland. And so it's my impression, my assumption, it's only an assumption, we have nothing to prove this on, but my assumption is it'll take an equal amount of time to get down that curve as it took to get up it. So if we're talking five or six weeks from now, that's going to take us to the end of May easily. And then schools only got one or two weeks left after that. So um, I don't know. I mean, I, that's good. The decision is going to be, have to be made by the governor and by the, the secretary of education for the state of Maryland. Um, but I'm not optimistic. I'll be honest with you. I'm not optimistic that we're going to open schools again. And uh, I'm not optimistic that we can relax our social distancing and restrictions of movement anytime soon. The risk of doing that, the risk of letting people back into the community without restrictions, the risk of letting our school kids go back to school, if we haven't brought our caseload down to a manageable enough level with enough testing, identifying those positive cases and isolating them, then we run the risk of having increase or, or you know sudden blips of the numbers of cases that we're having. And every time you have an increase of cases, guess what? We're going to have increased numbers of deaths. Now, I don't want to do that. I, um, I'll, I'll gladly stay in self-isolation or quarantine or, or self, you know, uh, restrict my movement at home. I would gladly do that for three more months if it'll save, save people's lives. So you brought up the fact that um, once we hit the peak, we still have several more weeks to get down from that. Do you think that's that people understand that once we hit the peak doesn't mean that this is over, that it's still it's going to continue for several weeks? No, I don't. I don't think people understand that at all. Um, and I think what we're seeing around parts of the country, certain states are, op are, op are slowly opening their businesses again. Georgia, for example. And Georgia hasn't reached their peak. I'm pretty certain of it by looking at their data. And I think that is a grave mistake. I think there'll be grave consequences because of that. You, know, you look back in history, look back at the the really the mother of all pandemics, the 1918-1919 uh, flu pandemic that literally killed millions of people worldwide. We saw that when we, we ended the war, there were major, major celebrations of BJ Day, major celebrations and major congregating of people again to celebrate those celebrations. Well, that's what resulted in one of the next waves of that pandemic. Not a good idea. And that was in a society with many fewer people than we have today. So I just hope that we take those lessons learned from previous pandemics. We've had at least a half a dozen of, of them since uh, beginning of the 19th century. Um, I just hope that we look at those and, and remember those lessons learned and realize that we do have a ways to go. And I hate to sound the alarm bell, but we have a ways to go. And it's important that we protect our community. All right. So I know uh, Governor Hogan, when he's opened a lot of his press conferences. He's been talking about that roadmap to um, reopening. So is this something that you think for Maryland that we will open as a state or is this maybe something that Frederick County will decide to open before PG County decides to open? That's a great question. I, I can't speak for any other jurisdictions. Um, and I, I don't know that answer. I am fairly confident as best as I could be that I, I would not want to relax any measures in our county in our jurisdiction uh, in contrary to what the governor is recommending for the state. So I think the governor has been spot on the entire time. I think he has been right on top and really one of the best governors in the state and in the country for making the recommendations to save and protect his people in this state. And I'm really proud of what he's recommended. And um, I don't imagine that we would uh, be recommend any changes to our community contrary to what you would recommend for the state. All right. Um, and in terms of, you know, reopening, uh, is it possible that we will be able to reopen before we have a vaccine? Or is that kind of the tool that we're all waiting for before we can fully reopen? Great question, Heather. And um, 
no, we will have to reopen if we have a vaccine. We have to. We're not going to get a vaccine anytime soon. You know, vaccine production, vaccine discovery uh, generally takes about 15 years to develop a new vaccine. That's about the average. 15 years for any company to produce a new vaccine for a disease, especially a new disease. And so starting probably 20 years ago, uh, when our government took, took impressive actions, knowing that uh, this is always a concern, knowing that there was concern for bioterrorism in our country, took impressive actions to develop an infrastructure throughout the government uh, to be able to find a way to develop vaccines faster. And so we are developing and can develop vaccines faster, but it's still not, it's not a matter of weeks or months. Uh, you still have to go through the safety trials, the, uh, the trials to make sure that we don't hurt people when we give them the vaccine, the trials to find out exactly what dose of vaccines required to make a suitable immune response in an individual that we know that that person can and will be protected. That's going to take months and months and months and months. So we cannot stay in, in this level of social distancing and restriction of movement for a vaccine to be made available. That's why it's so important that we get testing universally available across the board for anybody and everybody. But two, that we increase our ability to identify cases, new cases, and that's because of the testing. And three, that we can, we can from those cases, identify what contacts they've had. So that if there are small little outbreaks in our community, we can hopefully prevent that outbreak from spreading too large. Even, we, even when we do relax our uh, social distancing and, and uh, restriction of movement in our community, we will have small blips, I'm certain of it, as we go along. But if we do those things, we can identify the cases, contact trace, and make sure there's no spread beyond those folks, and keep those folks in quarantine and or isolation. And we'll go a long way to helping to get us through the next six months, for example. But we won't have, we won't have a vaccine, I am certain, until at least the end of the summer, uh, if, if beginning of fall, even if even if that, which would be a miracle, we get a vaccine that fast. All right. So if we don't get a vaccine till the beginning of fall, what happens once we hopefully be able to start reopening the state? It gets colder again, and we have flu season on top of this. Yeah, it's a, another great question. You know, whatever we do, whatever happens, whether it's a summer or fall or whatever, but when we start letting folks get back into the workplace in the fall, kids getting back into school, what's going to happen when that first child starts coughing because they've got uh, some other non-coronavirus infection, right? Uh, well, hopefully we'll have the ability to test and rapidly test. And my goal is to have a five-minute test that I can administer it to anybody and get, get an accurate result from that. And that Accuracy, I, I stress that, it's so important. I'll talk about that in a second. But to get an accurate result. So I can tell that child and the school and the family, it's not coronavirus, it's a uh, human metanuma virus or some other childhood uh, cold virus, which there are a couple of hundred of these viruses that it causes colds. So that's what we're hoping. That's why we need good uh, broad spectrum testing for everybody. All right. And so you mentioned like the kids in school, but what about the um, pre-K school, the, those toddlers and really young children? How vulnerable are they for this disease? Well, they're as vulnerable as you or I. They're no, I don't think they're any less or any more vulnerable to it than you and I are. Um, and, and the good thing is, at least we've seen in children, you know, we haven't had a, there's not been, I don't think there's been a death in Maryland for anybody under age 20. And so the, the likelihood of children having uh, really adverse outcomes from being infected is really slim. And I think that's, that's great, that's fantastic. I'm really glad that our younger populations are being affected. Uh, I don't know why, but they're not, they're not having ad major adverse reactions for the most part. Uh, there are case reports across the country that uh, we are having deaths in some young, young, young children. So it's again, not to be taken lightly whatsoever, but, um, Anyway, I hope I answered your question. You did. Um, and how about the mask? Because I know everyone now has to wear a cloth mask or some kind of face covering if you go to a retail store. Can you explain a little bit more about what, what the science is behind having everyone wear a cloth mask? Yeah, so I like the way you called it. You called it a cloth uh, face covering, and that's what it is. Um, it could be anything. It could be a scarf. It could be a, 
uh, homemade mask, and gosh knows we've got a lot of them, like this guy right here, which one of my uh, colleagues' friend made for a bunch of people. And you know, the idea of this, Heather, is to when I put this on, I put it on to protect you. I'm not protecting myself from being infected. And I'm hopeful that everyone else out there thinks about this. They're going to put that mask on uh, to protect me. I don't want to come into contact with someone who's sick or someone who's asymptomatic and spreading that virus. They don't even know it. If they don't have a mask on or a face covering, then there's a real chance that they could be talking to me if I'm unfortunately too close to them to spread the virus to me just unwittingly and certainly not intentionally. And so it's important that I wear this mask to protect you and all of you out there wear the mask to protect me and each other. And uh, I think I think it's important. You know, people say, well, no, I'm gonna wear this mask because it's gonna protect me from getting sick. No, 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 no. <clears throat> when I put this mask on, easily I can get virus particles going right down through here, through here, through here, and through here. And I wear out a beard. So this isn't gonna protect me from getting your virus inside of me, even if I have my mask on, if you spread your virus close to me, I could easily breathe that in through around the holes. And so we talked about masks earlier, we mentioned masks at least. So masks, those face masks, surgical face masks uh, that we use for our hospitals and our healthcare providers, those are the folks that need to be using that kind of uh, personal protective equipment. Not to mention the N95 respirator which is a, a, it's a medical device that is fitted to someone's face. And if you haven't been through the training or if you don't get tested to make sure when you fit that respirator onto your face, if you don't, if you don't get tested with that on, and there's a process that facilities do that, then you run the risk of that mask providing you, you no protection whatsoever. No better, and it is no better than having this on. Because uh, you can still, if, if, again, if you haven't been trained how to wear those respirators, It'll get in from the top to the sides and the bottom, just as if you didn't even have it on. So um, for me, you know, I treat all the tuberculosis patients in the county and I can't wear an N95 respirator because of my beard. So I wear a, a full hood with a power, a power filter that is continually putting air into my hood that prevents anything from getting inside the gaps around that hood. And so it's a positive pressure air purifying respirator. So I don't recommend that for everybody, but, but this is what we need. If everybody wears this, then if you're infected, you don't even know it, you're not going to spread that virus to anybody else. You're going to keep the virus inside the mask here instead of spreading it out there to other people. All right. And just, you know, to go real quickly onto the, um, the surgical and the N95 mask. You know, as someone who's in public health, were you surprised by the shortages that we experienced early on in this pandemic? Yes, I was. I think we all were. Um, whether we should have been or not, I don't really know. You know, again, about 20 years ago, our country created this national stockpile of equipment and supplies, right? Again, in, in response to the threat of bioterrorism. Uh, if we had an anthrax release in a community our size, we would have devastating numbers of casualties and ill people. So. Um, that's why the stockpile got started. And it has morphed over the past 20 years. Um, after the last pandemic we had from flu back in 2009, uh, I think after that, they allowed some of that stockpile to dwindle for whatever reasons I don't really know. I don't understand why it wasn't um, kept up to the same level that it, it was before or should have been for now. Did someone just misjudge how much we needed? I don't know. You know, we've learned a lot from this pandemic for sure, but this shouldn't have been a surprise. We've known for we've known for a long time that we would have a pandemic just like this one. We've all known it. We've all been preparing for it. Uh, we've all prepared for the worst uh, scenario so that we could respond to even something a little bit less than worse, right? If you're ready for the worst, then you can take care of anything less than that. Uh, but apparently that's not the case for our national stockpile of PPE, personal protective equipment. And so for the masks, those cloth masks that we were talking about, um, for young kids, like I know you're not supposed to wear it if you're under two. And for those who might have COPD or find it too difficult to breathe in, does that mean you just need to stay home and avoid places right now? Yes, absolutely. Okay. 
absolutely maintain social distancing and don't stay home. I, mean, I, I want people to get outside. I want them to go walk in the parks. Uh, I want them to get the exercise and the fresh air we all need. I mean, I, I'm afraid people are going to go stir crazy if they don't do that. There are safe ways to go outside. Um, you can be outside as long as you're not near other people. And I, I'm not so keen about that strict six foot limit because um, who knows if that virus could actually spray a little bit further if someone were to sneeze with a snoot full of virus inside of them. I suspect you could probably go even further in six feet, but that's the general guidelines that we give. And so people can go outside. You know, I'm so, I'm heartened when I see families walking the sidewalks now and, uh, no, no, just taking care of themselves and doing things they've never done before. You can start to get very emotional from this. And I've learned, um, excuse me for this, uh, the way I handle stress apparently is I, uh, my emotions rise to my surface very easily. And so I, I get even teary in the silliest thing of watching some cartoon with my children or something on uh, TV, but it's kind of weird. But um, but talking about this is a very emotional thing for me because it's, uh, it's worrisome. I worry about our people. I worry about our community for sure. Um, our society has uh, changed a lot and will change a lot, but I hope not too much. And I hope that uh, whereas, and we need to be cautious for another year or so and make sure there's no subsequent waves of this pandemic like we saw 100 years ago with the 1918 flu. We saw multiple uh, waves of that flu wipe, wash across the, the world a couple of two, three times. And so I think we'll be cautious for a long while until we're absolutely confident that we don't have that virus circulating anymore. Um, yeah, I think we'll change a lot. I think our work practices will change a little bit, probably a lot more teleworking than we ever had before. I don't know. I, I just hope, though, that we get back to being the, the caring community we always have been, especially here in Frederick. Um, our community is extraordinarily caring and compassionate here, and I, that's one thing I love about working here in Frederick. And um, I, don't want to, I don't want to ever have a day where we will never shake people's hands or give people a hug again. Um, I hope not, at least. Um, and, and what about changes in healthcare? I know that that's been a big discussion. You know, as someone who's in public health, are you seeing changes that will last for the better? Um, I, I don't, I, I don't know how to answer that question either. I'm not really sure. I don't, I don't think so. What limited I am as a, as a uh, not working in hospitals or other doctors' offices. I don't think I don't think it will change much. We're we've always practiced medicine the way we practice. What's different right now is that healthcare providers have have begun utilizing contingency uh, standards of care, which which lessens uh, some of this the string uh, the the um, rigidness of how we practice care. But we've all always already moved into the crisis standards of care. So we just can't do things the way we normally practice medicine. Those things have changed, but they shouldn't last forever. Once this pandemic is over, we should all go back to practicing a routine standards of care for providing, providing healthcare. But we realize that in this extreme environment, we have to make changes just to be able to see the numbers of patients we're seeing. Um, one thing that might change, Heather, I just think that would maybe telemedicine. Uh, a lot of our providers, and even our hospital is using telemedicine to see patients uh, much, 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 much more than we ever did before. But remember, we've also uh, relaxed some of our uh, federal and state requirements for conducting telemedicine just so we can do it in this, again, this extreme environment. Will those uh, regulations and rules stay relaxed? I don't know. Uh, but it certainly has been a lifesaver to have that ability now. So. That's a good good example, I think, of how we might change mess in the future, more telehealth. All right, and so here's my million dollar question. Is this the big one? Is this the big pandemic of our lifetime or is it a possibility that we'll, we'll have another one in a couple years? That is a million dollar question. That's a billion dollar question. Um, here's the way I think about it. We haven't had a pandemic like this since 1918. It's been over a hundred years, right? And this is a big one. Um, we've known we're going to have a big one. But if you look over the past 15, 20 years or so, 25 years, 
we are continuing to see a, a continual increase in numbers of major epidemics, if not pandemics. Um, we've seen uh, 2005 H, H5N1 bird flu uh, epidemic. Uh, we've seen 2009 uh, H1N1 bird flu pandemic. We've seen two Ebola uh, major epidemics. We've seen a Zika, uh, they didn't call it a pandemic, but Zika pandemic. And we will continue to see an increasing number of worldwide epidemics, if not pandemics. And so if and when one of those involves a virus, and most likely a virus, uh, that mutates enough or mutates just right to allow it to be easily transmissible person to person, there's no way to predict that. But we have more people in this world than we had 100 years ago. We have more opportunities, we have more vessels for those viruses to get into and multiply and, and, and mutate. So there's more opportunities for mutation. Uh, our ability to globally travel from one part of the globe to another within a 24-hour period and spread that disease easily from one part of the world to the other is increasing. The number of flights, yearly flights that are recorded has doubled in the past 10 years, 15 years. So all that said, I think we are increasingly at risk for future pandemics just like this one. This won't be the last one. Is it going to be the last one in our lifetime? Gosh, I hope so. But I'm not confident that it will be. We, meet, we need to be better prepared globally and nationally in case we do have another one like this. And I think there will be a lot of lessons learned. I can't tell you how many times I've used the 1918 pandemic as a tool for teaching when I teach infectious diseases or, or teach uh, pandemics or epidemics and things like that. They're gonna be using this pandemic for decades, decades to come to teach other people how to respond better. All right, and I know that we're still in the acceleration phase, but what lessons have you learned so far because of this pandemic? Uh, I've learned that even our, our brightest and smartest minds in the world uh, just cannot in such a short amount of time have 100% clarity and understanding of the nature of a new virus. Now, I will tell you that um, we think China was incubating this virus in December of last year, right? And I can, I can tell you that I reported on this, this outbreak on January 10th to our county health and medical subcommittee. And I reported that, as I do every meeting we have, uh, what's happening in the world. Usually it's Ebola or it's Zika or it's measles or flu. Always give an update for all the leading uh, folks in our county. So I reported that day on January 10th, this outbreak of this unusual pneumonia of an uh, unknown name in China, where there were 59 cases on the day I reported it. And so by that time, uh, incredibly, we could never done this before, China had already sequenced that virus, had already learned that it was a, a novel virus that we'd never seen before. So, but you know, if you think about it, uh, even though we've had to uh, evolve very quickly on how we respond to this, both locally in our community, within our state, nationally, and even globally, the way, the way that we've had to evolve so quickly is, is predicated on what we learn about the virus. And you would think that, gosh, Randy, it's been January, February, March, April, we're, it's our fourth month now. We don't know anything about this virus yet. That's the nature of a new virus. That's the nature of a new pathogen. Uh, it just takes time. We had no idea that we would see asymptomatic transmission. We had no idea that we would have such uh, ferocious uh, infectivity. Um, but we do, and we're still learning things about this virus. So that's been one thing that I, uh, it's been a lesson to me. And number two, um, the way that we, we as a community in Frederick uh, come together, not just for this pandemic, but for everything that's happened in this community. Our community partners in this community are, are so well, uh, they work so well together, whether it's Division of Fire and Rescue Services, uh, so the fire folks, the EMTs, uh, the ambulance crews, whether it's emergency management for Frederick County, whether it's our hospital, whether it's our colleges, universities, um, whether it's uh, county governments, uh, the city uh, administrations, 
um, our departments of aging, everybody. We have such a great relationship among all of our partners that makes it so much easier to respond here uh, in this county. And that, that, is, that is not a lesson learned, something I've always known, but uh, sure makes it a lot easier and nicer to uh, work through this problem because we communicate with our partners every week. I have phone conferences with our partners every week, I have phone conferences with all of our long-term care facilities every week, I have phone conferences with all the behavioral health providers, all the medical providers. Every week, we are on the phone every week with everyone doing these conferences, sharing what we learn every week from the CDC or the Maryland Department of Health with all of those folks. And communication is great in this community. And I'll, the third thing is, again, not a surprise. It's <laughs> uh, so right back to you. Um, Heather, you've done a, a terrific job of reporting on this pandemic in our Frederick News Post, both in print and online. And that's critical. That is critical to have the information as we're learning it, as we learn it, shared with everyone in the community. And only you can do that. Uh, we do it through our, our, our ways that we do it, through the JIC, our Joint Information Center. We do it through social media and we do it through our website. But you have the ears of everyone in the community. And uh, as always, as you always do, you've done a terrific job of reporting on this and getting information to the people who need it so they understand what is going on. Well, I'm happy to do my part. You do it well. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I don't want to take too much more of your time, but I did want to ask real quickly about the antibody tests that we are hearing about a lot. And I was just hoping you could quickly explain what these are and why they matter in a pandemic. Good. I'll go a step further, too. Heather, I want to talk about not only what they are and their usefulness in a pandemic, but the limitations, too. And this is really important to understand. Um, the testing that's been done to date is designed to get a sample from the body, usually a swab that goes to the back of the nasopharyngeal space, the right back through the nose, to the back of the nose, or back of the throat, the oropharyngeal swab. You take that swab, you take that little uh, Q-tip end of it, put it into a tube with some viral liquid uh, transport medium in it to keep the virus alive. And they're sent to the laboratory and they test it. We're testing for the presence of that virus. Uh, that is an antigen test, an antigen are proteins on the virus itself, the viral structure, that we are looking for those specific proteins. Uh, we recognize those, that's what makes the test positive. So we're doing antigen testing now. And even with that test, it's not 100% accurate. We know now that uh, there is a possibility that we have about a 10% false negative rate. What that means is, is if you get a negative result, you cannot be absolutely 100% certain that person does not have COVID-19. And so what we tell folks, that we tell everybody, that if you've got a patient or if you've got a resident in a long-term care facility that has symptoms similar to COVID-19, treat them as if they're positive, whether the test is positive or not. And I think that's been critical. So that's antigen testing, and that's what we've been doing worldwide now. So recently, um, we've been looking for a faster, better, quicker test, not better, but faster, quicker testing um, so we can identify more people. And that's the antibody test. If you and I were to get infected by anything, whether it's uh, this COVID-19 virus or any other disease, our body immediately re reacts by developing uh, immune cells to fight those foreign invaders inside of our body. And those immune cells we create to fight it end up uh, becoming our antibodies in our system that if we ever get exposed to this virus again in the future, we already have fighters inside of us that will fight against that virus because they recognize certain structures on that, on that viral uh, particle. So antibodies are the same things that are produced with every vaccine any of, any of us have ever gotten, whether it's a measles vaccine, uh, anything, all your vaccine we're injecting or putting into our body a little bit of the antigen from the organism to allow our body to make those antibodies against that antigen. Now, those antibodies for a lot of us will stay in our bodies for a long time. Some, some uh, antibodies against some diseases last longer than others. But I gotta tell you, sometimes it takes, right? Some vaccines take more than one dose. Maybe it's three, maybe it's three doses of vaccine that have to give an individual to make sure they get a, a fully functioning antibody level to protect themselves against the disease. So that's what antibodies are. 
when we do antibody testing, we're not any longer testing for the antigen, we're testing for antibody. And those are called immunoglobulin M or immunoglobulin G or IgG or IgM. Those are the names of the antibodies we're looking for, but they're specific to this coronavirus uh, that's been circulating. You have antibodies already inside of you to measles and mumps and rubella and uh, half a dozen of other diseases too. So the new antibody testing is looking for those specific antibodies someone may have made if they've been infected by this virus. So here are two points to keep in mind that are really important. Um, if someone gets infected by this virus, there are seven point some odd billion people in the world. So there are seven point some odd billion ways that people will respond to the virus. And by that mean, some people will develop more antibodies than others. We don't always know why. Some people may not develop much antibody at all because maybe they weren't exposed to much virus in the first place. And so those individuals with very scant antibodies really stand a chance of maybe being reinfected with the subsequent exposure. And this is something that we've been learning about this virus too, that there's enough anecdotal evidence now to, to prove that we know or we feel that there are people who are getting reinfected. Now, whether those reinfected people can infect somebody else, we don't know yet. There's been no real evidence that we've seen that, but we know that people are getting reinfected. So when I test you for antibodies, I'm gonna test for antibodies. You may not have many antibodies inside of you because you didn't develop many antibodies. So maybe the test will be a negative test. Even though you truly were infected and you did develop antibodies, maybe this wasn't very many antibodies, number one. Number two, uh, we are seeing a flood of these testing systems coming into the market. There are already a, a few licensed or approved by the FDA, but there are a flood of tests coming into the market such that providers throughout Frederick County and I'm sure the state, I'm sure the country, if not the world, are being, uh, uh, people are knocking on the door from these companies saying, hey, I've got this great test I'm gonna share with you, I'm gonna sell you, that will identify everybody in your practice who has the virus. That is fraught with a lot of uncertainty because remember earlier I talked about these tests have to be accurate. Well, that's great. Even the antigen test is not 100% accurate. Well, a lot of these tests, we don't know anything about their accuracy. We don't know how sensitive they are to identifying every positive case. And so this is a worry to me. This is a big worry to me that we will get these tests into the market. They'll be used um, indiscriminately and giving very, very inaccurate results and maybe giving not the right uh, level of confidence uh, that the people you're testing are going to be positive or negative. So it's it's worrisome. Uh, antibody tests have a role, good ones, good antibody tests have a role in surveillance. So if I were to give an antibody test right now to every single resident in Frederick County, 260,000 of us, I can tell you right now who has been exposed and who hasn't, assuming I had a, a good antibody test, right? And there are a few good ones out there. Um, so I can tell you right now who has been affected and who has not. Uh, that could be useful, uh, but it isn't useful right now when we're still trying to just identify true cases and isolate those cases. We have the testing to do that with the antigen test. We don't need the antibody test at this moment, but we probably will use antibody tests in the future uh, to help identify population-wise who has and who has not been affected. Well, I'm sorry, that's a long answer to a very good question, but it's important that point out two things about uh, being infected, recovering and getting reinfected again. And the fact that some of these antibody tests are not worth what they're, uh, what they're made with. All right, and before I let you go, I just wanna ask about something that we had talked about earlier this week, which is um, active cases versus people who've been released from isolation. And I was just hoping you could explain a little bit more about what it means to be released from isolation and why it's hard to say this is actually how many active cases we have in Maryland or Frederick County. Terrific, thanks for that. Uh, and I'll share with you know that the data reported by the state, even by us, we, we report the number of cases total that, have, that we have positive test results on. And we report the number of people who've recovered, et cetera. So that number of people recovered is really means those numbers of people who've, who've been released from isolation because they met certain criteria. So when someone is sick, we know that there is a period of time that they are infectious to other people. 
So we are following three criteria to allow someone to come out of isolation following their onset of illness. And those three criteria are the following. One, it has to have been at least seven days since the onset of their illness. So one week at least since they got sick. Number two, they have to have at least three days without being having had a fever, without use of medications like Tylenol or aspirin. And third criteria is they've got to generally be feeling pretty much better, not completely better. They might still have a cough, might still have some body aches. They've got to be feeling fairly much improved, all right? Once those three, crit three criteria are met, our nurses who call every single patient every day they're in isolation, we can let those patients out of isolation. At that point, we call them recovered because um, they're not infectious to other people at this time. And so that's what we mean by recovered in the data that we're reporting. So this simply means that these are folks that have been released, released out of isolation. I'll share with you that the number of patients that are being reported as recovered is probably a, a, a very, very low estimate of the true number of people who have recovered. I don't know if every jurisdiction in Maryland actually tracks every patient every day or two uh, until they get out of isolation. Some jurisdictions might simply say, look, when you meet these criteria, you're out, you're out of isolation. They might not have the ability to follow up with them, especially those communities, those uh, jurisdictions that have a lot more cases than we do. In fact, we're finding it harder and harder in our community uh, to continue calling patients and following up with them to see how they're feeling and let them know when they get out of isolation. So that's what we mean, what we mean by recovery. It means that they've met the criteria to be released from isolation and they're not infectious any longer. They still may be sick, they still might have a cough, so might have body aches, but they're not infectious any longer. All right. Well, is there anything else that you think we need to know? No, you've you've really hit the the really some of the key questions I was hoping you would ask, and I think some of the things that people hope listen to today uh, will give them a little more understanding, a little better sense of, of why we are restricting movement, why we're suggesting the social distancing and. It's all to protect everyone out there. It's protect all of us, you and me, and all of our friends, family, colleagues, and all of our communities uh, against this really incredibly dangerous, dangerous virus that's still continuing to spread. All right. Well, Dr. Culpepper, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Heather. Appreciate the opportunity. Hope you have of a great course. day. Thank you. You too. Thank you. Frederick Uncut is produced by me, Heather Mangilio, and edited by Graham Cullen. We'll see you soon.